Now, if you have children between the ages of four and six, you may send them to children's worship training. Well, they will learn more about the corporate nature of worship, how to pray together, how to sing together, how to sit quietly together and hear the Word of God. They're also welcome to remain here with you as we turn together to the book of Ephesians. We are once again in the last chapter, chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. And our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord, and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or master. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would give us not only wisdom and understanding, but Lord, that you would give us a change in our lives and in our hearts. By the power of your Holy Spirit, the author of this word, we would be changed made more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this now is the third in the mini-series within the larger series on the book of Ephesians, dealing with the theater of the gospel opportunities for us to show forth the gospel of Jesus Christ in our everyday lives. So I want to remind you that this is merely Paul continuing his application of what it means to live the Christian life. It started up in chapter 5 and verse 18. The larger category of what Paul was talking about was to tell the Ephesians and you and me that we are to live lives that are filled with the Spirit. And then down in verse 21, he tells us that we are to submit to each other as God has ordered, to submit to each other in Christ. And so the thing that comes to our mouths almost immediately is the question, what does this look like? How do I know if I'm living a life that's filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to submit to others in Christ? 
And so what Paul has been doing has been giving us very practical application with word pictures, as it were, of what that looks like in our lives. Things that are very familiar to all of us, even children. He tells us what it looks like in our marriages. He tells us what it looks like in our homes, in our families. And now he is going to take it out of the private sphere into the public sphere, what it looks like with respect to work. That is what he is doing this morning. We're going to be looking at what it means to live for Christ in the public sphere. And so as we have done the last two weeks, I'd like us to look at this, breaking it down into three ways. First, the duty of servants. Second, the corresponding duty of masters. And then third, the glory of work, the real purpose and glory of work. Let's begin first by looking at the duty of servants. Paul begins our section this morning with an interesting word. It's not something we expect would have modern application. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, what I want us to understand here, that as Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what he says has application beyond his time. The Bible is not frozen in just the time it was written. We can't come to the Bible and find parts we don't like and say, well, they don't apply to us now because that was a long time ago. But we must also remember that Paul is writing in his time. And so he's using language and circumstances that are immediately applicable in his time. To do otherwise would be to speak to the Ephesians and they wouldn't know what he was talking about. And so we are the ones who come to God's word and have to apply it to our lives. We see here that Paul begins by speaking to slaves. And that immediately raises a question with us and our modern sensibilities. Because for us we say, well why didn't Paul come right out and just condemn slavery? Doesn't everyone know that slavery is wrong and is something in the past and something that shouldn't be allowed now? Why isn't Paul more vigorous in promoting change in the Roman Empire? And I think the answer that comes to us is not that Paul is pro-slavery. We'll see in just a moment. There are many opportunities that he has to criticize the foundation that slavery stands upon, to destroy slavery from its foundations. But what Paul is telling us is that the gospel is not primarily about political change. Even when things need to be changed politically, even when laws are unjust and must be changed, that is not the primary focus of the gospel. The primary focus of the gospel is redemption and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And so that's where Paul is going to spend the bulk of his time. Now again, don't get Paul wrong. He is going to say things against the institution of slavery and that undermine slavery as it existed in his day. But it was a fact of life that Paul had to live with. And that's why he speaks 
to slaves. It might offend our sensibilities, but not the Ephesians. Do a little experiment for me. Look down your row either side and count people by threes. Acknowledge who the third person is each part of the row. And if we were living in Ephesus in the days of Paul, each one of those third persons would be a slave. We know that there were potentially as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. One out of every three people was in some form of slavery. And that meant that there were many slaves in the church of Jesus Christ. And it means that Paul took it upon himself to treat them as Christians, as valuable people who need God's word, not to be ignored, but to be instructed so that they might follow the Lord in their faith in Christ. The slavery that existed in Roman times was also different than what we are used to the word slavery connotating. Slavery was not a a racial institution. There were slaves from all over the world. As a matter of fact, the primary way that people became slaves was after they were conquered in a war. So there were slaves from Africa, from Asia, from Britain, from Germany, from what is now France. This was a very different kind of institution. Slaves were not just farmhands or house servants. There were doctors who were slaves. Lawyers who were slaves. Officials in the government who were slaves. And slaves were allowed to own property. And slaves could purchase their own freedom. It was a very different kind of institution. But at the same time, there was still great wickedness in slavery. Masters were often cruel to their slaves. They would beat them. They would threaten them. The slaves were bound to the bare whim of their master. There were not laws of protection. And so what we see here is Paul attacking slavery from a moral standpoint. He's attacking slavery not by suggesting legislation, but by declaring that slaves have equal value before Jesus. That they are people made in the image of God to be respected and to be brought before the word of God. Paul has done this in his other writings as well. You may remember that in the epistle to Philemon, he declares the equality that slaves and masters have in Christ. He tells them that they are brothers in Christ. That that is far more significant than any economic arrangement or circumstance. And actually, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, we see Paul declaring that man-stealing, that is, taking someone for the purpose of enslaving them, is one of a list of wicked sins that are a remnant of sin in this world. Paul was not pro-slavery. But what Paul was focused upon here is the relationship that each Christian has to other people and to show forth the gospel in the public realm. And so what we must also see is that this word is not just for slaves. It is also applicable by analogy to a situation of employment in which there is freedom. It applies to workers and employers as well. And so this allows us not to escape 
the consequences of Paul's words. If we look at this and say, well, this is no good anymore, there are no slaves in America, then we miss the point. This is something that continues to be true because we miss the point in thinking that slavery is gone as well. There are millions of people throughout the world, especially women and children, who are now today in slavery. And God's word is just as applicable for them as it is for us. And so the very first thing that Paul says is he tells workers, servants, slaves to obey. Now he deliberately uses the same word that he used in verse 1 in telling children to obey their parents. Now if you recall, that word obey has as its main root to hear or to listen. It is to listen to those who are in authority because you are under their authority. And that we obey because we hear what they are saying to us. You recall we told children that they are to listen to their parents and to do what they say because that is right. It is a part of God's created order. And so here we have, even in the sinful order of masters and slaves, we have Paul here reminding servants and workers to listen to those whose authority they're under. Now, we can't take this out of context any more than we could the last two weeks when we spoke about women submitting to husbands, children obeying parents. The greater context here is that God is the king and sovereign of all. And that all this obedience is to be done as to the Lord. That's actually what Paul says. Remember that Paul is reminding both the servants and the masters that this is an earthly control. It is an earthly hierarchy and context. And so if masters or employers tell you to do something that is against the word of God, you are not to obey. So if you go to work this week, and your employer tells you to cook the books, you don't need to obey them. If your employer tells you to steal from a competitor, you don't need to obey them because of verse 5. Because verse 5 excludes obedience that requires disobedience to God. We see this clearly even in the way Paul describes the obedience. He says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, when we first hear this, especially in the context of slavery, we get an idea in our minds of a slave cringing underneath a whip, fear and trembling. But that's actually not what Paul is saying. He's not referring to a slavish fear. This phrase, fear and trembling, occurs throughout the Bible, and it almost always refers to the awe and sense of fear that we have before God. One example of this is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where we are told by Paul to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Same phrase. It's found also throughout the Old Testament. And in the parallel passage to Ephesians 6, that is Colossians chapter 3, in verse 22, servants are told to obey their masters with a fear of the Lord. It is very clear here that the driving force is our respect for God as our creator and king. Just as it was in the family, just as it was 
in marriage. The second thing that Paul tells servants is that they are to work from the heart. That is, when we work, we are to work with sincerity. Now, this word here, with a sincere heart, it actually means a singleness of heart. It means we shouldn't have dual motives. There shouldn't be an ulterior motive to our work. We shouldn't work just simply because we can get one up on the chain. We shouldn't work simply because we think we can gain benefits. No, what Paul says is we are to work heartily and sincerely for our employers. There should be no outward show to conceal our inward hearts. Now, this requires a vision beyond work, doesn't it? Because in the midst of the everyday of work, if we're honest with ourselves, our main motivations are a paycheck, vacation, and a promotion. Right? That's what's right there in front of us. And because that's right there in front of us, what Paul says is, is you are to work sincerely. Do not be deceptive because you think you'll get a bigger paycheck or more vacation or a promotion. If you get those things, fine. But it should be a result of sincere work that you are providing for your employer. Work should be honest. Paul puts it another way. He says, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers. Now, you may not have heard this word, eye service. But I dare say, everyone here has experienced it. It doesn't just happen at work. It happens at home, too. It happens when the kids volunteer to do work, so mom and dad can see them doing it, and be happy or proud or reward them. And then mom and dad walk out of the room And somehow the work just doesn't seem to get done. I experienced this when I was younger. I think I've told some of you before that I spent a summer working for my father in his office. My father was the boss in charge of the office. I was the mail clerk in charge of nothing. And so one of the interesting things about that was when I was younger, I used to wear glasses and I looked an awful lot like my dad. And so I had this experience of going into the mailroom after doing a messenger run. And as I walked into the mailroom, it was amazing. Everybody started typing away on computers. People were sorting stuff like crazy. They were doing all kinds of work. Because, of course, they thought my father had just entered the room. And they wanted to impress the boss. They were eye-pleasing, people-pleasing. If we're not careful, that can be the course of our hearts. That we can only want to work when we think we will get benefits from it. This is wrong. Paul goes so far as to say that it's sin. It's not the way that we properly work. The idea here is that we work not just so that the boss will think well of us. But we work because we are working for Christ. And Jesus is the one, after all, who sees everything all the time. 
And the reason is, is we do not want to be seen as a hypocrite. Because if we are seen as a hypocrite at work, it goes beyond our labor and our work. It goes to our character and it makes a mockery of our claim of faith in Jesus Christ. After all, if your hearts have been changed, they're changed all the time. Not just some of the time. The third thing that Paul reminds servants is that they are to work with the Lord in mind. Now, this is very hard. I can already hear some of you now saying, Pastor, you don't know my boss. You have not been to my job. This is exceedingly difficult. And I can say that perhaps I don't. But I can say that Paul's instruction here is the same kind of instruction that he gave to families. It's the same kind of instruction he gave in marriages. And that is, there are no excuses. We need to stop looking for loopholes and instead start looking to Christ for the strength to do what he has commanded. So if we have difficult bosses, if we have hard jobs, the way we get through that is by praying to the Lord and living filled with the Holy Spirit under the power of Christ. That is how we manage our work. We look beyond our jobs and we look to Christ. Paul then next turns to masters. He does this here at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. So this is interesting and it continues the pattern that Paul has been using. He begins with those who are under authority. Wives, children, servants. And then he moves to those who are in authority. Husbands, parents, masters. Now the reason this is so interesting is that worldly instructions would never look like this. In accordance with the world, you never get instructions to the masters as to how they are to behave. Aristotle gave plenty of instructions to slaves and servants. None to masters. Roman philosophers, such as Seneca, gave plenty of instructions to servants and slaves, none to masters. But Paul here wants masters to understand that they are a part of these God-given relationships. It's not just that they are in charge and can do whatever they want. No, Paul's instruction here is overarching and it is inescapable. He says, Do the same to them. Now this is paradigm shattering. You know what I mean by paradigm shattering? I think the new modern way to express that is by going, right? It blows your mind. And that's because everything that Paul has said to servants, he's applying to masters. He's saying they're to treat workers with respect. He's saying they're to be honest and sincere with them, not taking advantage of them. He's saying they're to treat them with the understanding that the relationship they have with their workers ultimately points to the Lord. This is the golden rule, isn't it? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But this is not just a statement about behavior. 
It is a stunning statement about the worth of all people. That workers, servants, slaves all have value as people made in the image of God. And they are worthy of respect and basic honor. Think of how different that is from all notions of slavery in the world that treated slaves like things, like property. Paul says, no, no, no. Not only are they not property, they are people made in the image of God, worthy of your respect, your sincerity, and your honesty. How could anything be more world-changing than that? That's far greater than Paul simply saying the Roman Senate should pass some new laws. He's ripping out from under slavery the supports it has. What Paul is saying is that our worth is in Christ. Not in our position and not in our circumstances. And this is something that we all need To hear today. Because for some of us, we value ourselves as less than others merely because we haven't had the success we'd hoped. Because we're not as successful in business or in the marketplace. We think somehow we are less than other people. And Paul says, No, that's not true. Your value is found in Christ. And for others of us, we think that we are worth more than other people because we are successful, because we have people we can order around, because we have large amounts of valuable equipment underneath our authority. And Paul says again, no, that's not true. Your value is found in Christ. No matter what your circumstances, your value is found in Jesus. And so the second thing that he tells masters is that there is to be no threatening. Masters must not abuse the authority that they have because they are under another's authority, that is, God's. Now, the standard way of the world was to deal in this context with threats. It was pretty much the only way that masters acted toward their servants. They assumed if something needed to get done, they would threaten punishment unless it was done. But what Paul is telling us is that relationships that are based on threats are not real relationships. Let me say that again because that has broader implications beyond even the workplace. Relationships that are based on threats are not Real relationships. What God wants us to do is to move beyond efficiency. Work is about more than simply getting things done. He's telling masters, it doesn't matter if you'll have 4% greater growth this year by threatening. You shouldn't threaten. There's something more important than profit. There's something more important than efficiency Work is an opportunity that we have to build and have relationships with others. And so Paul is talking to Christians who are in the workplace, so to speak, who have authority, and he is telling them that what you ought to be concerned about is not simply making more money, even if you're going to donate it. 
What you should be concerned about is the relationships that you are building with others, especially those who are under your authority. The third and final thing that Paul advises masters about their duty is that they are not to be expecting favoritism. He reminds masters this in verse 9. He says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Paul reminds masters that they are not independent operators. They may be in charge here in the earthly realm, but they are not the master in heaven. And he is again calling upon equality before the Lord. He is reminding masters that they are equal to their servants before God. You see, we cannot expect God to treat us with favoritism, even if some people do here on earth. This is a real challenge for those who are in authority in the workplace. Because you're in the workplace and you come up with an idea and you have ten people around you tell you it's the best idea anyone has ever heard of in their life. Or you have a strategy or a plan and someone says, you're the smartest person ever. What's the best plan ever? We are surrounded at times by yes people. And what Paul says is, is we cannot expect that kind of partiality before God because God is honest and just and true. So we must remember that there are no favorites with God. Thirdly and finally, after the duties of servants and the duties of masters, we come to the glory of work. Work is an important part of our lives, isn't it? Without it, we wouldn't eat. Without it, we wouldn't have a roof over our heads. And as a matter of fact, perhaps with the sole exception of sleeping in our beds, it is the single place where we spend the most time of our lives at work. And so it does not make any sense at all to ignore the gospel implications of work where we spend most of our lives. And so we must work first and foremost for God's glory. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to work as a Christian? What do we do when our work is hard or boring? How do we deal with employees that are disrespectful to us or anger us? The key to all of this is to work for Jesus. Our whole lives are to be to the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about how often Paul points us to Jesus in this passage. In verse 5 we are told, as you would Christ. In verse 6 we are told, as bondservants of Christ. Again in verse 6 we are doing the will of God. And in verse 7 it is in the Lord, as to the Lord. Over and over again, Paul points us to the context of our working relationships, that they are found with the Lord. 
It is not as if we go to work and somehow we have sealed off God from our lives. We're not allowed to speak about Him or focus about Him. No, all the more, Paul says, our lives should be affected by the Lord. There is a reformational phrase that helps us here. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone, the glory. All of our lives are to be lived for the glory of God. And God is glorified when we work hard, when we work with sincerity, when we work with consistency, even as Paul has enjoined us. And when we work for the glory of God, we can do all of these things, even if there are challenges, difficulties, harshness before us. Because our focus is not upon the humdrum of a boring job or the difficulty of an obnoxious boss or an insubordinate inferior. But our focus is on Jesus. And that carries us through day upon day. The last thing that Paul wants us to see is that we are to work with eternity in mind. It's critically important for us To keep the big picture before us. You see, work is about more than what we produce. Work is about much more than money. Work is about much more than gaining a reputation. Work is a way that we serve our Lord. Paul is saying this over and over again, and he's explicit in verse 8. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that whatever good you do, God will make sure that you get an extra paycheck in your mailbox this week? I don't think so. Does this mean that if you work really hard, God will mysteriously make promotions for you? No. You see, again here, we can't focus on the earthly and on the mundane. We have to have eternity in mind. The reward that we get from God is not money or reputation or things that perish. The reward that we get from God is His blessing. His smile, as it were. It is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that is a reward that comes to those who do good regardless of their position in life. Again, you see Paul here equating all people in Christ. That's what we labor for. The well done, good and faithful servant. And we labor knowing that the Lord has already given to us everything that we need. We have everything that we need, not just now, but forever in Christ. This week, as you go about your business, no matter what it would be, work heartily and sincerely, honestly, for the Lord. That others might see, that they might ask questions, and that the gospel would go forward even in our workplaces as we honor the Lord. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder that every part of our lives is important to you. That we serve you, Lord, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces. Everywhere we go, Lord, we are to be ambassadors for you. So, Lord, we ask this morning that you would equip us for this task that you have given to us. That we would be the light of your word and your gospel. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.